Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is Lisa Gabrielle, whose new novel, The Winters, was published last month. The Winters is a contemporary reimagining of Daphne du Maurier's immortal novel, Rebecca, and it's a riveting read from beginning to end. Lisa, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thanks, Charlie. It's great to be here. So The Winters is loosely based on, or at least inspired by, Daphne du Maurier's classic novel, Rebecca, which I remember mostly through its fabulous adaptation into film by Alfred Hitchcock. Tell us about your relationship with the source material and why you thought it would make a good contemporary novel. Well, I, like you, came to the story first uh, via the Alfred Hitchcock novel, um, or sorry, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. Uh, I lived uh, just outside of Detroit as a child, and there was a show called Bill Kennedy at the Movies, and uh, it was a local access TV show, and he had uh, an obsession with Joan Fontaine. And so did my mother. And um, I just remember racing home from school and watching that movie when I was a child a few times. And as I got older, uh, the movie started to make more and more sense. But as a child, I didn't really understand its its appeal. I didn't understand why the main character didn't have a name. I didn't understand why people were consumed by a dead woman. Um, it was only as I got older that I realized just how gripping and uh, memorable this, this story was and how potent, especially in a young woman's imagination. Oh, and why it became, I mean, it became, to me, uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite movies. And it wasn't until I read the book uh, as a teenager that I understood just how, you know, uh, subversive Dor- Daphne du Maurier's novel was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, the movie, uh, the summary very quickly, you know, this woman falls in love with a, a, a wealthy man, goes back to his house in Cornwall, and is haunted by his uh, the ghost of his, his dead wife. Um, and soon she finds out that she uh, died and, you know, he got rid of the body. Um, but in the movie, she dies by accident. But in the book, you know, he murders her. Right. Um, and uh, it just seemed to me to be, um, you know, a, a story that was really ripe for the retelling, uh, to recast each of the characters and place them in a modern era and ask myself the key question, which was, you know, what would happen if the men stayed the same? But the women changed, and then the story became altogether brand new. In taking on Rebecca, you're dealing with one of those really famous first lines in literature. I mean, those of us, people, even people who haven't read the book, sort of know that first line. Uh, I dreamt I went to Manderley again. Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. Uh, I have the same experience when I wrote of The Further Adventures of Ebenezer Scrooge, taking on Dickens and his first lines. Tell, tell us about your first line and how it connects to the original, and yet it sets your novel distinctly on its own path. Well, it is called uh, technically an iambic hexameter. Uh, it's 12 syllables in a lilting tone. And um, it's what makes the, the opening of Rebecca so memorable. It has a kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's a lyrical quality that, that sort of, you know, is so deeply pleasing to hear. Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. And I must have gone through 
I don't know, a dozen iterations before I landed on last night I dreamt Rebecca tried to murder me again. It, it also it also has 12 syllables. It's an iambic hexameter. And it's, you know, for those sort of true Rebecca files, I think that uh, they'll pick up on that right away. For those that don't, I just wanted to make a very potent opening line that gave it a dreamlike quality and uh, resurrected in some ways my Rebecca, who is Russian and rich and spells her name with a K-A-H. Um, and I wanted to sort of set that tone and, and set that down right away. So you talk about setting this dreamlike tone. And in fact, the first scene of your novel is a dream. Mm-hmm. And you write that dream in the present tense. And then when the dreamer awakes, you shift to the past tense. I'm fascinated, by the way, that writers use tense. And tell me why you chose to, to do it in that particular way. Well, I think with suspense, uh, playing with tense is, is, is quite fun. Uh, in reading it and uh, in writing it too, I wanted to play with ideas in this particular novel uh, with time. And so the dream is a recurring dream, so it can happen at any time. And I wanted to play with that perception in the opening because you're right. I mean, I mirrored the same sort of uh, structure as the original Rebecca with my opening pages. Uh, the tragedy, whatever it is, has already happened you know, sort of the tone of it is like a wistful looking back. But the dream is something that just happened, uh, and she is only waking up from it. And that um, inspires her to begin this memory journey to bring the reader back in a not-so-distant past when her life um, sort of came together and then and then fell apart. So, you know, the dream introduces us to the fact that they are, um, my characters are in exile. And why they're in exile becomes the gist of the novel. Many of us know the basic setup of Rebecca, but um, explain to us the basic setup of your novel and how, how it differs from the original. Well, it, it starts similarly with a young woman who works uh, in the Cayman Islands uh, crewing boats. Um, I'd spent some time down there and, uh, and been around uh, people who uh, work on boats. And it's a crazy difficult job. Um, and it's a beautiful place. And it's a very secretive place, Cayman Islands. Um, so it opens there. And uh, she's a loner, uh, sort of uh, orphan, mid-20s. Um, and, you know, she's working for a rather imperious, bossy uh, Australian woman who owns half, half the marinas in, in the Caribbean. Uh, so she's accustomed to being around wealthy people, but she is not prepared for how she feels about Max Winter, uh, a play on Maxim de Winter, who comes down there frequently and spends most winters there. And they fall in love. And when he, you know, convinces her to come back to his mansion and live with him, they'd only known each other about five weeks. And uh, But she's in her mid-20s. She's not a child. And she sort of throws caution to the wind and heads back with him. And that's where the book... Rebecca and my book depart. Uh, so the the romance and the setup and the the dead wife uh, are similar, but instead of being greeted by a ghostly sort of mean housekeeper and Mrs. Danvers, who makes it difficult for the original narrator and Rebecca uh, at every turn, uh, my character is greeted by a very imperious and rage-filled 15-year-old daughter. So the the story becomes really about 
the difficulties of blending families, as well as the ghosts of the past and, you know, what happened to Rebecca and who's responsible for her death. Um, that becomes, those, those questions become paramount. And, and I throw some homages to the original Rebecca. There is a dress stunt in my book as well, but it happens, <laughs> happens at a very different uh, occasion. And, and, you know, the perpetrator and the, and the culprit is, is, uh, is, a, is a little different as well. So, so I've just played with perceptions. If you're familiar with Rebecca, you know, these little Easter eggs are going to be very fun to stumble across, but also they're sort of miscast. And if you're not, it just stands alone as its own thriller. Um, uh, you know, uh, and as I said, once they get to Ashley back in Long Island, it takes on its own, um, uh, it, it has its own plot and it takes on its own, uh, you know, uh, energy and, and feel. Um, it has to, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't want to write the same book. And I also wanted to play with modern tropes. And if my test was, uh, that I put to myself, uh, that, uh, you know, the men have stayed the same, especially rich, powerful men, which isn't necessarily untrue. Um, and the women have changed. Then, then of course my book, the winters would have a very different ending. Um, and, uh, it was just a matter of sort of following those characters to their inevitable conclusion. Because I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen when I started this sort of experiment. Um, but I was pleased. <laughs> I was pleased with how it ended. One of the things I liked about it was they had this familiar tension from the original, and yet that tension is sort of ratcheted up by the fact that I really didn't know what was going to happen because it was going down this, this slightly different path. Would you read us a passage from the Winters? I will. Um, I like to read, uh, a starting in chapter two, after the dream and after the sort of sense of like, um, uh, after the, you know, the, 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 the sense that they're in exile. Um, actually, you know what, maybe I will read chapter three. This is when she, uh, stumbles onto Mr. Winter at night. For the rest of my shift, I thought of nothing but Max Winter's visit. While hosing off his boat and prepping it for the morning, I thought of how he'd held my gaze and the warm smile he'd given me. A small enough gesture people trade a thousand times in a day, yet this one's effect lingered. He'd paid attention to me. He'd said my name. He wondered why he'd never seen me before, as though I were someone to be remembered. He said directly to me, that he would come for the boat in the morning and bowed when he said my name, using the proper emphasis. It was a short walk from the marina to staff housing, but there was a stretch of West Bay that had no sidewalk, and I often took the beach route to avoid walking next to traffic along the unlit highway. The sand made for a more challenging hike, but it was better than being in a car's blind spot. Besides, on certain nights, the walk cleared my head, and that night I needed it. When I reached the townhouse, the sound of another wild party wafting from our living room stopped me cold. The townhouse was one of three Lorene-owned, stacked side by side like tombstones at the end of a bleak cul-de-sac on the other side of the highway. I stood listening to the insistent baths pul pulsing from the house while slowly deflating. I had nothing left. No reserves to cut through what would be a forest of drunken people crowding the stark rooms, draping over each other on the greasy couch, every tabletop a wasteland, of empty bottles and overflowing ashtrays, I looked back across the highway towards the blinking lights of the marina, feeling like misery itself had tapped me on the shoulder and offered me its arm. What else was there to do but trudge back to the pier and the cot in Lorene's office? 
I didn't bother with the beach route back. I was so tired. I almost wanted a truck to swerve and miss a chicken and hit me. And to make a bad night worse, I spotted a lone male figure approaching, staring into his phone, the screen lending his face a glowing malevolence. When you're a woman walking alone along a highway at night, it's often a toss-up over what's scarier, a drunk driver who can't see you or a man in your path who can. My instincts always assumed the worst, but when the man suddenly stepped out in front of an oncoming car, another instinct kicked in and I screamed, look out! A screech of brakes and the man's phone spun in the air as he plunged backwards into the bush. I scrambled towards him, retrieving his phone. When he finished brushing dust off his pants and stood upright, I found myself looking at the face of the man who had occupied my thoughts all day and with such intensity that for a moment I worried I might have manifested him. Thank you. It's you, Max Winter said, accepting his phone. Good God, my phone must have blinded me. Are you all right? I am, yes. I think you might have saved my life. Cars sped by us, illuminating his face every few seconds, his expression hard to read. I thought of Lorene's concern about his taking his boat out alone. Was he depressed? Are you sure you're all right? I stepped closer, boldly placing a hand on his forearm. Let me help you. I promise you I'm fine. I'm more embarrassed than bruised, he said. He glanced at his phone before pocketing it. What are you doing out on the highway anyway? You should, be use- you, sh- you should be using that, I said, pointing to the walkway raised over the road, off limits to staff at night. I got a text from my daughter. It's in the middle of the night where she is, so I couldn't ignore it. We got to texting back and forth, and yeah, the rest is history. Where are you heading so late? I hesitated. I didn't want him to know I lived the way I did. Lots of people had roommates, and I was only 26, but suddenly my life felt dingy and squalid, and I wanted to give him the impression that I was older and more sophisticated. I forgot something at work. I was just going to go back and get it. Well, lucky me, you did. Let me walk you. The least I can do in return is to make sure you're safe. I began to protest when he added, and please don't worry, you won't be spotted. He knew then that staff wasn't allowed to socialize with club clients, not even for a benign stroll like this. If Lorene saw us, I'd be fired. Placing a hand on the small of my back, he led me across the road, then down the path along the south side next to the hydrangeas, my earlier route. He knew exactly how to get to the beach from there, and he seemed aware we'd be able to walk in near total darkness all the way to the edge of the marina. We stood at what he intuited was my drop-off point, foot of the long dock dividing Lorene's property from the country clubs, which by day had the ambience of a small hospital where wealthy people might go to convalesce. But at night, from this vantage point, the club seemed warmer and more intimate a place, relaxed and cozy. Max checked his watch and looked around like a spy. Okay, run, I'll, I'll wait right here. You don't have to do that, I insisted. I can get home by myself. Regrettably, my dear, because I was raised by a chauvinist pig and her sexist husband, I do have to walk you home. His joke made me laugh, but I still had to make a choice either introduce him to the shabby chaos of staff housing or tell him I was planning to sleep on a cot at work because of it. The thing is, there's a party going on at my place and I really need to sleep, so I'm staying out here tonight. He looked out at the clapboard office at the end of the pier. I mean, does it lock? Is there even a blanket? Yeah, and a pretty good pillow, I said, so it's not a big deal. And what of you? My arms swept across the dark beach. Yeah, it's better than the one I have. So no need to feel sorry for me, Mr. Winter. Besides, I have an early morning. What with this last-minute demanding client who wants his boat to be ready to go first thing. Wow, he said. What an asshole. Yeah, he's a senator or something, I said, rolling my eyes. But only like a state senator. He laughed a little too loud. Mr. Winter, keep it down, I whispered, craning around for witnesses. 
Please call me Max, he said. Nothing else. Max. He tilted his head, his focus on a point between my eyes, just above my brow. It felt intimate, this look, like a prelude to something. Not quite a kiss, but something that overwhelmed me, even unexpressed. Well, good night, then, I said. Yes, of course, good night. But I'm going to wait right here to make sure you reach the office safely. I'll leave you when you flick the light on and off. Deal? Deal. And we'll, I will see you again in roughly nine hours, he checked his watch. Actually, eight, even better. I nodded by way of saying good night and turned to leave. Making my way down to the end of the pier, I was aware of his eyes on me. I willed myself not to turn around to check whether he maintained his vigil, worried he'd mistake it for coyness, an invitation. It was only when I unlocked the office, flicked the light switch on and off, then collapsed on the cot that I fully exhaled, kicking my legs a couple of times like a schoolgirl with a crush. Of course I didn't sleep. There was, in fact, no blanket, and the pillow was the orthopedic cushion from the office chair, but I didn't care. I welcomed the adrenaline rush that accompanied these brand-new feelings. Maybe Lorene was right. Maybe I was, indeed, a dark surprise. Was that the right passage to read? That was As a great read, passage to read because I have a whole set of questions I was going to ask you about that very passage. Okay, because, I was worried. Um, I, didn't, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to read something that gave a, a feel of the book, but it, that, that was a little romantic. Well, I mean, but, I, but I do think it really gets at the at starting to establish a tone, and where's, here's why. I think for all of us as readers, when we see the situation where you've got this essentially minimum wage worker, female, walking home alone in a dark place late at night, and then she encounters a, a wealthy man. It's an inherently dangerous situation. We can't help but seeing it that way. Uh, what I want to know is, why, does, why do you think she trusts him? But also, how does that scene sort of, of, of inherent danger that she kind of skips through, how does that set the tone for what comes further on in the novel? Well, I think that what she, re- she, I think because she feels like she saves him, that she feels she has the upper hand. Mm. Um, and, and he allows her that, you know, at every turn. He, I think, intuits also that she's overwhelmed by his attentions and um, is startled by him, uh, you know, suddenly appearing on the side of the road where he shouldn't be in, you know, this incongruous place for him. And, um, she worries more about him, and it's in her nature to turn that back onto 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 you know the care onto him as opposed to herself. Right. Um, and so, and they have a little secret. You know, now they are you know together when they shouldn't be. This is a very posh club. Staff is not allowed to mingle with uh, clients, and now they're kind of stuck. And he sort of takes advantage of that um, a little bit by sort of saying, well, I insist on walking you home, and she can't seem to get him off that track. So there's a lot of power being shifted back and forth in this scene between, the, you know, her and also her shame about not wanting to show him where she lives because she has met him already once and hopes to impress him a little um, and is embarrassed even by that. Uh, and again, I think he can pick up on that. They, they sort of have a lot of unspoken um, energy between them, which, which makes me believe in their swift courtship. Like I buy, I buy that five weeks in and these two would, would, would get engaged because they're right. similar too. they're very internal people, but not very showy. Um, and, um, their romance is, is quite subtle. Max says something not long after this, um, that to me is another one of those moments that seems sort of innocent on the surface, but it has this brooding darkness underneath it. He says to her, born on a boat, lives on an island, working for a witch. You're a Grimm's fairy tale set in the Caribbean. And I, I love the fact that you didn't say fairy tale. You said Grimm's fairy tale. Why did you make that choice? 
Well, the, I think being an orphan, uh, uh, the loneliness of that statement, he really underlines it. Uh, you know, he picks up all the dark stuff. And, and also they both commiserate over her boss, who's a bit of an imperious witch, I guess, Lorene. Um, and uh, yeah, she's, uh, and, that, and that in a way, uh, when you stack up all those facts of her life and then, and then add, tag it with the idea that she lives in the Caribbean, that seems incongruous as well. The right. sun, the way the sun sort of exposes everything to the, you know, the light. Um, it's a difficult place to be mendacious. Um, in fact, their, their, their romance is very honest and light filled and there's no secrets in the Caribbean. It's only when she arrives in Long Island that everything darkens. Right. Right. There's some other foreshadowing moments that I love. One of the great ones I think to me is there's, she's being given a list of things that she should stock the bar on the boat with on Max's boat. And it includes a sharp knife. And that just like really stuck out for me. Um, and I think the reason that jumps out at me is because I know Rebecca. So I'm expecting a certain kind of book, even, even in these early chapters, how aware are you of the expectations that readers bring to this book, even before they've read a single page expectations that are, that are created by the knowledge that, that you're, drawing inspiration from from this pre-existing source you know at first i was a little too aware and 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 i had to eventually lose that um lose those inhibitions and just let the book that i'm writing um unfold um <clears throat> the earlier drafts yeah i was a bit more self-conscious the later drafts i started to the world started to become very vivid to me and i started to understand like these were practical things that she would bring in there was an ominous quality to a lot of the little sort of touches throughout the book that was one of them as well um and uh you know i i had to put rebecca away i had to actually at a certain point stop you know, digging through that book um, to find signposts to sort of guide um, the the beginning parts of the book, where I was trying to sort of seduce the reader into thinking it was one thing, and then you know, getting to Ashley and letting it become its own thing, especially once Danny appeared uh, on the scene. Um, so yeah, very aware. And then suddenly, I had to sort of like put blinders on and just allow this book to be its own sort of. Um, secretive life that was unfolding. Right. Your heroine writes, I was and still am unremarkable. What do you mean by that? And why did you choose to make her feel that way about herself? You know, I don't think she is, uh, I, you know, people have asked me about whether she has low self-esteem. I don't think she does. I think she's very self-sufficient. And I just think she's not had um, her own sort of her qualities reflected back on her in any meaningful way. When you lose your mother young, you don't have that growing female presence in your life um, at which you bounce your sort of your, your appeal up against. You don't have anything to weigh yourself up against. So I think when she thinks of herself as unremarkable, it's that she's actually very often not very remarked upon. I think that's why she holds on to those early flirtations as I, when I was reading, where he mentioned my name, he looked at me. These were, these were really critical moments for our heroine, you know, the narrator. Um, she was being seen for the first time. So I think, and also she isn't, she isn't a stunner. Like if you go to places like St. Bart's and the, and the Caymans, you know, and you see wealthy people driving around, hanging around on those, those those posh beaches. There's some beauty, beautiful women. Like, you know, however you measure it, um, there's a level of, of gorgeousness that she just does not stack up against. So she works. She wears an office uniform. Like she wears a marina uniform, and she's you know tanned from working outside all day. 
um, sun scarred a little bit. Uh, her hair is an unruly mess from the sea salt. And I've kept her, you know, uh, her descriptions of what she looks like relatively vague. You know, and she obviously has no name, which is a tip of a hat to Rebecca, uh, on purpose, because I want the reader to sort of fall into her world and see her world through her eyes and feel like her. So she can look a lot, you know, she has a, she can look like a lot of different people, but she has a Cuban grandmother. She lives in the Caribbean. So she's, she's tawny and she's, um, um, she's, she's a tra- I, th- I think she's attractive, <laughs> but she doesn't see it. Because no one tells her that. This is a book, and I think you've said this, but it certainly stuck out to me. It's very much about female relationships, and I want to delve into that in just a minute. But first, the women are all tied together by their connections with Max, whether they yes. are in love with him, used to be married to him, yep. or you know, or daughter, servants, co-workers, sister, everything else. And Max, as you sort of alluded to there, is a, is a state senator in New York. Um, why did you choose to make him a politician? Well, I think because I, I, I started watching Rebecca during the fall of 2016 when the American election was unfolding as a distraction. I just needed to stop watching cable news and get off Twitter. Um, and so I started thinking, well, I'll just throw in some of my favorite movies. And then I started to watch that movie. And I remembered that, in fact, Max had killed Rebecca and dug through the book again and became enraged all over again. Um, it was just, you know, see if politics has been, you know, seeped into our uh, you know, our ecosystem, uh, in the last two years in ways that I've never experienced before. Um, and so I wanted him to also be a little bit of a metaphor for that too, and to play with expectations for the very wealthy, because some of them aren't what you think they are. And some of them actually are, do you know what I mean? (laughs) By the end of the book, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. So I wanted to play with those perceptions and I also wanted, uh, uh, to write about ambition, and I think that the American political landscape right now is a study in ambition and the, th- and the, and the lengths to which people will go to achieve their means. Um, and I wanted to have that sort of underscoring um, life at Asherley as well. I mean, real estate and holding that island and keeping it in the family, um, you know, that I wanted to underscore with, with, uh, with politics uh, as they are sort of played today. And I love the way you sort of let that out a little bit at a time. So at the beginning, we see, oh, well, Max is a rich guy who's gone into politics to, you know, try to do the right thing. And then slowly we start to realize, no, he's just protecting his own interests. He's trying to make sure that the laws stay beneficial to this private island that he and his family have. Um, except for Max, as, we, as I said before, most of the characters in the in the book are women. We have the narrator, the unnamed narrator. We have Danny, the daughter. We have Katya, uh, who works in the house. We have Max's sister, Louisa. And this leads to a lot of great female relationships. I'd like to explore a couple of those. But first of all, what we might think of as the most unlikely one, because one of the characters is dead. But talk about the relationship between our unnamed narrator and Rebecca. Well, it was, it's funny because when you think about the original Rebecca, we never see her. We don't even see her in a painting. Um, she's mentioned and described by the housekeeper and, of course, by her husband. So she's mysterious uh, and enigma. And an enigma, and that's what makes the book so potent. And one of the things that I almost gave up on right away was even in conjuring the idea of writing The Winters, I thought, well, how can you have that same enigma today in the age of the Internet? Like, how can you have 
a mysterious woman who, you know, packs this, this potent punch from the past and you don't know anything about, how can you not know anything about her? We would know everything about her. And so I just, you know, I, I decided to just kind of play it like you would normally play it. So my character becomes obsessed with Rebecca because she Googles her and goes down a rabbit hole on the internet and starts to read all these articles about her and accomplishments and architectural digest and, you know, the big spread on her renovation of Ashley and, you know, the gossip columns and the photographs and the Vanity Fair spread when Max ran for, um, you know, election the first time. So it was, then it became fun um, because, once there was this sort of ubiquity of my character, Rebecca, then it became like, what's true? If, if all of these people are saying all of these things about her and, and, um, uh, and her, her husband is saying something else and her daughter is saying something else completely differently, then, then it becomes up to my character to figure out character to figure out who's the real Rebecca. And in this day and age, um, with a minor celebrity, like, like someone like Rebecca in my book, that's a very complicated task. Um, and so the enigma, the mystery remained intact, even in an era of, of complete ubiquity. So you mentioned the daughter, Danny, um, all of the, all of your characters, although many of them have corresponding characters in the original, they're really uniquely their own. And Danny to me stands out as a character who, uh, is very different than if you had had a similar character in a novel in the 1930s. Tell us how Danny, if for lack of a better expression, inhabits the age of me too. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Well, you know, the age of me too is really about whether you believe women or not. And that's really all it boils down to. Do you believe the stories they tell about themselves? And if not, why? And if you do, why? Um, and Danny at 15 is, is, uh, you know, the, not that me too ever comes up in the, in the, in the book in any literal sense, but she has a story to tell. Um, and her father is a very powerful man and her aunt is a very powerful woman. And now she's got this interloper narrator who moves in after knowing her father for a month in the, in the Cayman Islands. And she's not happy about that. Um, and she's wrestling with the past, the recent past and the death of her mother still she's grieving. Um, so she's also stuck in a situation where she's not quite, she, and she, you know, she, she has, she believes something happened. And when she has an opportunity to tell the narrator what she thinks happened, um, her credibility is already compromised. You know, she's already pulled a few dark stunts. You, we know she has a, a substance abuse problem. She's had psychiatric help in the past. You know, her father's talked about the history of her own mental illness. Um, and, of course, she's grieving her mother's recent death. So her, her, all of the things that she says are put through the funnel, through the sort of um, filter of these, these experiences that the narrator's aware of. And, and I think that sort of in the era of Me Too, we deal with that anytime a big story sort of erupts in the news, you know, the first thing we think about is the woman's credibility. Was she drunk? What was she wearing? Um, how did she know him? We watched what happened with Dr. Christine Blasey Ford mm -hmm. on television, you know, and the scrutiny that she was under and her credibility was questioned as well. Um, and in the end, you know, whether you thought she was telling the truth or not, it didn't really matter. At the end, it just, you know, it was inevitable what was going to happen. But it was a, it was a, you know, an exercise in, in believability, you know, was she credible? Um, and, uh, you know, the fault line lies, cuts right through the middle of the country. 
um, half the people believe that she is and half them don't. And I think in some ways, you know, my book is landing at that opportune time where, or not opportune time, but in that exact moment where it's like, this is exactly the situation that my characters are all dealing with. Half of the people believe them and half the people don't. And I think um, that's what makes for an interesting novel. I think what, to me, what even complicates that farther with Danny is, first of all, she's 15. Um, and we've all known 15-year-olds who are not necessarily always accurate in what they tell us about what they're doing in their private lives. Exactly. Um, and then also, she she's a, spoil, she's a spoiled brat. When we first meet her, her yeah. father doesn't seem to really know how to handle Danny and wealth, does he? No, she lies all the time. And she li- and she tells the truth about her lies. <laughs> you know, she's she's a really uh, she is a, a child of extreme wealth and neglig and, and negligence. Um, and she is, uh, yeah, you're right. At 15 years old, she's right at that nexus between, you know, child and woman, and she vacillates between the two extremes every day. There's a great line about female relationships that really struck me speaking about something Danny did. The narrator says 15 year old girls don't learn this particular brand of toxicity from men. They learn it from other women. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, yeah, uh, without saying too much about why she's sort of accusing Danny of, of, of this level of toxicity, but it's a pretty bad thing that she's just pulled. Um, and because there's an intricacy to the stunt that she pulled. There's a kind of, um, uh, you know, um, she knows exactly the buttons to push. And uh, my character just can't fathom that a man would understand that well enough uh, to pull the stunt that she accuses Danny of pulling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, I'm playing with perceptions. Is that true or false? We don't know. Um, are, are men incapable of that kind of cruelty? I don't. I think they are, you know. Um, but uh, in this particular instance, my character cannot, will not believe that anybody but Danny um, is capable of doing that. And she couldn't have learned it from anyone but Rebecca, because she is believing, mm. she believes the stories, um, the negative stories about Rebecca over the positive ones. We've, we've sort of danced around this a little bit, um, and that is the setting of the book, which is sort of out in the eastern end of Long Island. How, why did you think that, that Long Island would make a good parallel for Mandalay? Uh, I, in the, it, Cornwall, England is where Manderley, um, exists imaginatively in Rebecca. And that's a, you know, an ancient corner of England. And the only comparable ancient corner, I think in the United States, when you, when, when you're talking about history and money and wealth, to my mind is, is that part of Long Island. I mean, maybe, you know, more the Gold Coast, you know, uh, the um, Great Gatsby area, which is a little bit east of where I'm talking about, or sorry, a little bit west of where I'm talking about. Um, and mine, mine is located just, you know, northeast of, 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 of East Hampton. And the reason I chose that particular area and put them on an island was that I had, in the research stage, had gone to Long Island just to drive around because a fire figures prominently in the book. And I wanted to find a spot in that area that was dense enough where a fire could sort of burn and you couldn't get to it for a while. And I ended up at Suffolk County uh, Museum. And there I found this sort of map of Winter's Island, or sorry, Gardner's Island, which some many Americans don't even know about. It's this giant island off the coast of East Hampton, um, and it is ancient. It was given to the gardeners by the king in the 1700s, 
And that family has owned it ever since. And it's the largest privately held swath of land in in American history. Um, And that family has pulled all sorts of really nefarious stunts to keep it in the family. Mm. So I found not only, you know, my locale, but I also stole a few stories from that sort of family and altered them a little and gave them to the winters, um, the pirates and the, you know, the, the bound boys and the things that she stumbles on around Gardner's or winter's Island are pulled directly from the history of Gardner's Island. And so I felt very lucky. The narrator says she's almost as nervous to meet Asherly as she was to meet Danny. Do you, do you see the estate itself as a character? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm a, as a little girl too, I'm gonna always loved books that had, you know, that were located in mythical houses or big houses or houses with lots of doors and rooms and floors, um, haunted, that kind of thing. I mean, that was the singular appeal of reading Rebecca. I mean, the movie is fantastic, but the book is just like, it's something else. So yes. Um, and there is a Queen Anne Victorian school in, in, in Toronto where I live now, uh, that's on a hill that I drive by every once in a while. And I'm just always struck by how sprawling and mysterious it is. So I wanted my house to look a little different than the other houses in Long Island, the mansions, the center hall designs. I wanted it to have spires and mm-hmm. uh, tur- turrets and, you know, a bunch of different um, rooms and, tur- you know, spiral staircases and stuff. And, um, and to be the sort of visual talisman of old money wealth and to dazzle the narrator because once she sets her eyes on this place a little bit like the way that elizabeth feels when she looks at um you know pemberley is it pemberley yeah yeah and thinks oh (laughs) well (laughs) you know maybe i've been too harsh uh and uh, i wanted that same feeling too so yes ashley became um a character to me, one of the things I always think is important in, in writing any novel, but especially in writing a novel where there's a level of suspense and tension that's building, is how do you end your chapters? And I feel like you've got a real knack for ending chapters, not only in the right place but on the right note. Oh, how do you, you how do you decide when and how to end a chapter? That's such a good question. I don't. It's such a visceral, bodily thing. You just sort of feel it end on a like a sound, like a, like a thump, like a, it just feels, um, almost percussive. Uh, and when I feel that in my body, when I, when there's just nothing else to say, um, uh, I know that the chapter's done. And sometimes, uh, you know, I have, I have ended a chapter and not realized it and I've kept going. And then when I start to feel like the energy is sort of waning and I don't have a great response for the last bit, I kind of circle back and think, well, maybe the ending already happened and I skipped Mm -hmm. over it. So that's often how I find them. It's like the way you trim bangs. You just kind of like keep trimming back until it's (laughs) like, oh, okay, here we are. Chapter seven ends with a question. Uh, And the question is, if her own father didn't take her threat seriously, why on earth should I? I think, again, it's a very effective way to have the narrator address the reader directly, an effective way to end a chapter. And you use that technique in in several places of the narrator expressing a question out loud. Do you want your readers to mentally be shouting out their answers to those questions? Uh that, but also to understand my the unnamed narrator's reasonings. 
um, that question was a, is a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, she's looking for a reason to, um, she's sort of, she's about to face the fact that she's going to be a stepmother and she's terrified. So that's a good question for her to ask herself, to sort of, you know, give herself permission to sort of back off and kind of stand behind Max and let him lead the charge. Cause she's still quite uncertain how to do this. She's only 10 years older than Danny um, and uh, ill-prepared for, you know, the tsunami of this child's emotions. Um, yeah, I do. I like asking a questions like that. Not too many. I don't, I don't like a, a lot of rhetorical questions in books. One or two place at an opportune time where you really have to sit down and think. Um, and also where the answer isn't so clear. Um, because in this case, it's sort of like, well, you know, you do have to form your own opinions of this child. But at the same time, I completely understand why she would say, listen, if this guy's not going to make a big deal about it. No, uh, no way am I. Um, and, and her uncertainty, those questions are really the result of a 26 year old woman being thrown into this brand new world, deeply uncertain at every turn. This is sort of a, a broad question. Um, but as I'm, I'm reading this book and I kept thinking to myself, well, this is a pretty simple story. A woman falls in love with a man. She moves in with him. She doesn't get along very well with his daughter. She plans a wedding. I mean, that's that's basically yeah. what's going on for most of the book. And yet, on every single page, I, I feel this tension. I, I can't wait to turn the page to see what's going to happen next. How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for saying that. It's been a really gratifying um feeling to uh to hear readers talk about how what a page turner it is like how literally they could not stop turning the page um it helps i think to have a a first person narrative um deeply internal first person narrative uh it's the kind of books i've always written uh and i and i and so i have some experience i guess writing first person that's what i usually do um be- and, and also to keep the, the language very breathless and very uh, unadorned. Mm-hmm. There aren't, mm-hmm. aren't a ton of adjectives. You know, you just kind of always, I had to always kind of go back and kind of claw back. I, I found the edit- editing process of this book really unique because I was always pulling back, right. pulling back the language and keeping it sort of propulsive and um, moving forward, you know. And, um, uh, yeah, that's really it. <laughs> we like I, to- I love it. I love that E.L. Doctorow quote, and I've used it before in explaining this, where he's, you know, you can, you can only see as far as your headlights. Right. Um, so writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the trip the whole way. And I think that's, that's how I sort of treated writing this book and mm-hmm. suspense, filling it with suspense that way. I only wrote as far as the headlights. Right. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us all something to think about and give our listeners some special insight into you. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Admittedly. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Um, when they say um... Oh, um is the word. Okay. <laughs> um, where, where is your favorite place to write? Oh, my desk in my little office. I love it. Where could you never write? Anywhere else. I, I, I'm not a easy, it's not easy for me to sort of pick up and write in a cafe or, or anything like that. I, I, I'm such a creature of habit. I have to have the, I have a standing desk. I have uh, my, everything's calibrated perfectly. I have carpal tunnels, so I'm, I'm a little mm. bit fussy about the, you know, stuff. So, Yes. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Starting sentences with but. I do. I, I don't care. And and. I use but and and. What was the first book you remember reading? 
that I remember reading. Little Women. Hmm. What, are, what are you reading now? Oh, I'm reading Tana French, The Rich Elm. It's so good. What book would you like to have written? Less by Andrew Sean Greer. I just loved it. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I'd love to write a sprawling, world-building novel like Game of Thrones. Mm. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Your book changed my life. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a new community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Lisa Gabrielle, whose new novel, The Winters, is available wherever books are sold. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was so enjoyable. During the busy fall publishing season, Inside the Writer's Studio will post new episodes on the 10th, 20th, and 30th of every month. On our next show, I'll be talking to Virginia Pye about her new collection of short stories, Shelf Life of Happiness. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion.